honor your dad today. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I guess uh, I'm grateful to have the opportunity maybe to even honor my dad today. And uh, uh, he's been gone for a good 10 years, but I'd like to honor him in hopes that perhaps uh, my sentiments would maybe represent each one of ours here today. Just a few words that I'd like to say about my own dad, and then we'll uh, want to honor each of the dads here. You know, uh, when I was a kid, I can honestly say that my dad was the strongest man in town. And I, uh, I know it was one of those things where my dad can beat up your dad. But that was kind of the deal. And he was the smartest guy in town. And uh, really um, never had a college education, at least at that time. He ended up graduating from college at 72 years of age. But when I was growing up, he never went to college. But my brother put it this way at Dad's funeral. He said, you know, his college education was uh, reading books uh, from 4 o'clock in the morning to 6 every morning at the kitchen table, voraciously reading books. That was his college education. He was outspoken. He was sharp. He was smart. Uh, a leader in the community. Um, he was a very spiritual man. Uh, really uh, would see him at the foot of his bed praying uh, frequently. And he would always come into my room at night and admonish me. He said, Tim, you got to say your prayers tonight. And so he made sure that we would do that. Very vital guy. Full of life. Uh, he was uh, successful whatever he did. He was a successful farming magazine. He was uh, really as a farmer in, out in Iowa. He uh, uh, just was really vital, magnetic personality. I just can't say enough about him. And then, of course, as the years go on, uh, you realize, hey, my dad is part of humanity, and he's got his failings and shortcomings. And yet I will say to this day, uh, to me, my dad, in the midst of his human frailties, still is all those things I saw him as, as I saw him as a kid. He's still all those things to me today even in the midst of those challenges and, and human failings. And you know, I think that is part of honoring our parents. Honoring our dads is knowing they're frail and we all have our weaknesses and I'm a dad. But at the same time, uh, we honor them for all the virtues and all the wonderful things they do and have meant to us in our life. I have a picture of my dad up here as well. Uh, this is his military uh, shot in World War II. He's a bomber pilot with uh, B-17s and 25s and 29s. A uh, very vital guy. Uh, and i got to say that perhaps the best compliment you can ever receive has to come from the person you respect the most. Because that means the most, doesn't it? And I will say the best compliment I've ever received was uh, one my dad gave me, but indirectly. He would never go exactly through to say this to me, I don't think, but he told Julie. And uh, Julie told me, but he did say, you know, Tim's one of the three best men I ever knew. And i got to tell you, that meant a lot to me. And I, I also know it's not true. He needed to get out more. That was one of his human failings. But uh, yeah, that compliment has gotten me through a lot of tough times. And there's nothing that I possess, really, that is of more value to me than that. And I'm sure as the years unfold, I will go back to that compliment many times and what it means to me. And it will help me sustain myself through the challenges uh, that I will face in life. Because I know he was one who met life's challenges, and life is hard. But he met life's challenges, uh, he met those challenges, whatever challenge uh, life demanded, he, he met those challenges. And I 
really think that uh, one of the things we all want to do today in honoring our dads is uh, really so live our lives that our parents, our dads, would say that of us. That, uh, you know, uh, Juan, you know, Russ, uh, you know, whoever it is over here, Jesse, you know, those are one of the best men I know. They're one of the best women I know. I think that's how we honor our, 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 our parents, is living our lives in that way. And you know, it's um, uh, Tony Weeder, a Liberian friend of mine, uh, he said uh, in his tribe back in Liberia, he said that, uh, uh, you know, you can do anything you want to with your first name, but your last name is the family's. And you never want to dishonor your family's name. And that's how we honor our parents by choosing uh, to love them. And so whether you're young or old today, uh, whether your parents were perfect or not, and I know they're not, whether your dads are alive or dead, uh, whether you're still at home with your parents or outside, so live your life that uh, you might receive what I treasure so much. The greatest compliment I've ever received is the, uh, the thought of knowing your parents respect you for the choices you made in your life. What greater way to show them honor to the day. And with that said, you know what we want to do, and by the way, for those of us here in the firehouse, this gift that uh, the firehouse wants to give to all of you dads today isn't nearly as good as the ones we used to give at the fire, at back at the uh, Valley View. I mean, it's, it's really hard, uh, you know, to improve upon a $100,000 <clears throat> candy bar. Um, it's, um, it's really hard to do that. But uh, I'll tell you what, these are some pretty nice uh, things here. We've got some toolkits here, you know, for the dads. And so what we thought we'd do, kind of in the spirit of the uh, of, uh, of last Mother's Day, what do you say, each of you dads, just have one of your kids come up, or, uh, or you can come up, some of your kids aren't here today, send your wife, or we want to make sure, raise your hand, we want to make sure everybody gets one of these. And let's have you all stand up right now, and we'll give you a, a clap, and then have the kids come up for, for the dads. If you don't have a kid, we're going to hand these out to you, but let's have all the dads stand up right now. All right. So, uh, Dad, uh, why don't you have uh, your kids come up and pick a, a present for you? And then, uh, Brad, maybe as you head back to the back, you can hand them out to dads that uh, are going to remain seated. And kids uh, are free to be excused for children's church after this as well. So we'll hand these out and then you guys can be excused. Oh, yes. <laughs> there you go, man. You got that? There you go, honey. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yellow. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let's give the dads one more hand.
And what do you say we pray and we'll roll up our sleeves and uh, delve into my assignment, which is James chapter 2. Yes. Oh, kids are excused. I'm sorry. Yes. Kids, please be excused to children's church. All right. Thanks, Brad. And while they're leaving, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time together again. And uh, Lord, we, uh, we each, uh, all of us here have dads. And uh, we do honor them today. We honor their memories. And Lord, we also uh, want to live, so live our lives uh, that we would bring them honor. And Father, we, uh, we tell you today too, that as we delve into your word, that we hope that you would open up our understanding, open up our hearts to see more clearly the truths of Scripture and to apply those truths to our lives. And we commit that uh, to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty. Well, you know, um, you know, I really appreciated Jeff Weeman opening up last uh, last week with James chapter one. He kind of, as Rich often says, set the table for us. And uh, I may backtrack a little bit to kind of uh, refresh us with how chapter two fits into the big scheme of things. But one thing Jeff mentioned last week was that James, the book that we're going to be studying here in the next few weeks, is um, is really like the Proverbs of the, of the New Testament. And as there is a Proverbs in the Old Testament, uh, that Proverbs is filled with little points of wisdom. James is the same way. It's filled with points of wisdom. There might be a difference, though. You know, some people call uh, Proverbs, this is a very pricey uh, pearl necklace here. Really, its main value is the person is from the person who wears them. Really, not not these pearls, but here's a string of pearls. And in the book of Proverbs, every little verse is like a little pearl. It stands all by itself, very, very uh, priceless, very valuable. Uh, James is kind of like that. It's got a lot of different little verses that have different thoughts. But unlike the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, with individual little points of wisdom, James has an overarching theme. And it's really interesting to me to read this and understand this theme and how he laid it out. And I'm just going to share it with you. I hope it doesn't bog down too much on this. But I think when we study James, we'll see that there's three themes. And these three themes were presented in a classic Jewish presentation. It was a Jewish genre they called chiastic. And to the Jewish mind, that's how they often would present their case. They would lay out their themes, uh, theme one, theme two, theme three, and then they reverse the order. They talk theme three, theme two, theme one. And that's called a chiastic, and it's a Jewish genre of literature. And that's what we'll see in the book of James really clearly. James kind of put a twist to it. He had theme one, which is trials. Then he went to theme two, which is wisdom. Then he went to theme three, presented that, which is riches and poverty. And then he did it again, theme one, two, and three. And on your handout, uh, we'll have a handout we can get out to you guys. But on the handout, he then reverses the order three, two, one. So he did a one, two, three, a one, two, three, and a three, two, one. And then a chiastic kind of literature, uh, the climax isn't at the beginning, it's not at the end, it's in the middle, where the theme three is repeated twice. And so that big overarching theme, theme three, is riches and poverty. 
And everything fits in under that. So in chapter 1, where it talks about trials, it's the trials, even though it relates to all trials, more specifically those trials resulting from financial difficulties. And the wisdom he speaks of, even though it applies to any kind of wisdom we need, we'll see that as well. Particularly, it's the wisdom we need to deal with these financial issues and trials we're having as uh, Christian, Jewish, Christian people here. And so again, all these three themes, trials, wisdom, or again, riches and poverty, they're under that riches and poverty uh, umbrella. That's the overriding theme. And so, for example, let's just read some together in chapter 1 again by way of review. Verse 2, chapter 1. Dear brothers and sisters, whenever trouble comes your way, let it be an opportunity for joy. For when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. Boy, my mind just goes to my dad when I read that, by the way. Uh, how he developed a character to meet life's challenges, and he could do that. But that's what God wants for us. Our Heavenly Father wants us to be able to meet the challenges of life. And life is tough. Life is going to be tough for us all. And yet, God will give us uh, opportunities to build our character so that we can face whatever challenge life throws our way. So that's the first theme, is trials. And of course, these people, we learn more about them in the introduction, verse 1 there. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is written to Jewish Christians scattered among the nations. And so these Jews are part of the diaspora. They've been forcefully moved to other countries. Uh, It happened when the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern ten tribes. They actually took those ten tribes, many of them, and, and forcefully took them back to Syria and then brought Assyrians and put them into Israel in place of the Jews they dislocated. Think of that. Imagine our country experiencing something like that. That created a whole new race of people called Samaritans. And then the Babylonians did the same thing. And the Romans did the same thing. And now, in James' day, Herod Agrippa also was persecuting these Christians. And not only was Herod Agrippa, but so were the Jews. They were persecuting these Jews for having become Christians. Some Jews left the country because they wanted to. And some went to Egypt, some went to Syria for financial opportunities. But a lot of these Jews were forced to leave their country, their families, their communities, and go into other countries. And they often went there as slaves. And I think that's why James even identified himself, even though he's the half-brother of Jesus, as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, you know, it really doesn't matter uh, how poor you are. If you've got Jesus, you've got everything. And James wanted to identify with these people who are struggling as slaves. You know, um, I read this book called My Shadow Runs Fast just recently here about a guy that was in San Quentin for two life sentences. And God kind of worked it out where he became a Christian, got out of prison. Amazing story. But he was really lost heart at points in his prison experience because he realized he was going to be there for two life sentences. In a way, being a slave is like that. You're in prison for the rest of your life. You know, most Christians that are poor, they don't get out of that. 
And most people in the world are poor. You know, I had a chance to go to Moscow once and met up with some Christians there. And they were poor. And they're going to be poor the rest of their lives. And we were even told, don't give them 10 bucks because, you know, you just wanted like nothing to give them a $10 bill. Loose change almost for us over there. But they said, don't do that. That's a month's wage for those folks. And we don't want them to start thinking. I mean, the people there, the leaders there told us not to do it. We don't want them or you to think that money is what they even need. You know, they, they need it and they have all they need. That's Jesus. But imagine that. Here in our country, we can kind of have upward mobility. And did you know that 80% of all millionaires in the United States today are first-generation millionaires? That's amazing. You know, we can work our way up. But that's not true in most places. It's not true. And James is just identifying with these people. And so the trial that they were really experiencing was really trials related to financial testings. And then in verse 5 he goes on, if you need wisdom to deal with these issues, theme 2, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him and he will gladly tell you. He will not resent your asking, but when you ask, be sure that you really expect him to answer. For a doubtful mind is as unsettled unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And it continues on with the subject of, of wisdom here all the way through verse 12, or verse 9. And then in verse 9, Christians who are poor should be glad, for God has honored them. And now he's shifting to the third theme, riches and poverty. And what does it mean that God has honored these Christians that are poor? And those who are rich should be glad, for God has humbled them. What I think it means when it says that God has honored these Christians is, again, uh, they may not have anything on earth, and they may never have anything on earth. They may be slaves on earth. And inside some of these churches, some of the Christian masters were even there. Remember Philemon, his his, uh, slave Onesimus. They could have gone to the same church, the master and the slave. But again, what these poor people do have is a spirit. They have Christ. They have something of infinite value. And they've got an eternal hope. And so the poor should be glad for that reason alone. For God has honored them with that kind of hope. And a lot of these people that will have no other earthly hope, they have that hope. And again, James is identifying with them in this. And they should be glad. And those who are rich should be glad, for God has humbled them. The rich are reminded, Christian rich are reminded that their riches are like, uh, like the wind. It's going to blow the chaff away. You know, they're, they're reminded that they're going to be laid in the ground right alongside the, their slave, right alongside the poor person. The rich has nothing over the poor. They're, what they can be glad in is the same thing that the, the poor can be glad in. That their names are written in the book of, of heaven. That they're going to have an eternal hope one day. And so, in these few verses, we see, introduce those three themes. Again, the first theme is trials. The second theme is wisdom. And the third theme is riches and poverty. Then verse 12. God blesses the people who patiently endure testing. We're going back in that chiastic format. He's reintroducing testing again. Afterward, they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. And remember, no one who wants to do wrong should ever say, God is testing or tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong. 
and he never tempts anyone either. And again, the rest of this passage down to verse 18 relates to these trials. Theme 1. Then in verse 19, Dear friends, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. And now he hits on points of wisdom, starting in James chapter 1, verse 19. And then in James 1, 27, he concludes with that third theme presented one more time. Verse 27, pure and lasting religion in the sight of God and our Father means that we must care for orphans and widows in their troubles and refuse to let the world corrupt us. And so he introduces the theme of poverty and and riches again. So in chapter 1, we have 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. And now in chapter 2, he builds upon each of these themes. And in chapter 2, the whole chapter then, is going in reverse. So chapter 2 now is the theme, once again, of riches and poverty. And then chapter 3 and 4 is the theme of wisdom. You know, controlling the tongue. True wisdom comes from God. And then we get to chapter 5 where he concludes again with trials. And so in chapter 5, he talks in the first half there about those that are the cause of these trials. Uh, ungodly rich people. And then those who are the recipients of these trials. uh, uh, These Christians are under so much financial duress. So that's kind of how our chapter 2 fits into the big scheme of things. Our chapter 2 is an amplification of the third theme, which is the overarching theme of the whole book, which is uh, the disparity of the rich and the poor, and the trials that uh, the poor are experiencing, and the responsibility the rich person has to help provide for the needs of the poor. And so this chapter is divided into two segments. And so let's just read that first segment together. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim that you have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people more than others? For instance, suppose someone comes into your church meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in shabby clothing. If you give special attention, and maybe the best seat in the house to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you stand over there or sit at the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that you are guided by wrong motives? Maybe you think in your heart of hearts, if I'm good with this rich person, maybe they will be good to me. Maybe you think in your heart of heart, you know, this poor person, I really don't want to be that close to them because they're needy. And they may uh, draw from me. They may, you know, I might be able to borrow a rich person's Jaguar, but a poor person may want to borrow mine. You know, there could be evil motives in our hearts as we begin to discriminate between the rich and the poor. And so, James begins to address and gives four reasons why this is wrong in verse 5. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Number one, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Think of the early American slaves here. Some of the best spiritual songs. Swing low, sweet chariot. How's it go? <laughs> coming for to come on, work with me on it. Coming for to carry me home. Swing low, sweet chariot. You know, some of those spiritual songs were from slaves who indeed realized their richness was from the the promise of eternal life. And that made them rich for sure. 
But hasn't God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith? Think about it. Was Jesus rich? Jesus was poor. You know, Jesus had to borrow most things that he needed in life. He had to borrow a stable to be born in. He had to borrow the loaves and the fish so he could multiply them. He had to borrow a boat to speak to people off the shore. He had to borrow a coin to make a point about taxes to Caesar. He had to borrow the donkey to come into the city of Jerusalem. He had to borrow a room for the Last Supper. He had to borrow Barabbas' cross. A cross meant for Barabbas. He borrowed that. And he borrowed Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Jesus was a poor person. And you know, when John the Baptist was beginning to question whether or not Jesus was the Messiah, when he was in prison about to be beheaded by Herod, he sent a messenger to Jesus and said, Ask Jesus, are you the one we're looking for? You know? And Jesus said, You go back and tell John the Baptist. What? You go back and tell John the Baptist that the blind see, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 126, it says there's not many noble among Christians. You know, most Christians world over through the ages have been poor, have been pretty much the non-movers of their culture, of their society, and yet look how they have shaken up the world too by their faith in Christ. And so most people are rich. God has indeed chosen the poor. It's not that there aren't some rich that make it through. But you know the problem? This is a very serious problem. If you don't sense a need for God, if you don't sense a need for God, you're in a very serious position. And rich people generally don't. Rich people have their riches to trust in. Young people have their youth to trust in. And they're foolish because they don't realize their youth is only a vapor that will go so quickly. No, you know, the poor person, they tend to sense their need for God. And because of that, they're more open to the gospel. And here it says uh, in this point one here in verse 5, Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God that God promised to those who love Him? And yet, you insult the poor man. Two, isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Now, this isn't the Christian rich, hopefully. But in those days, if you owed somebody money, you could be taken to prison and you'd have to stay there until you paid back what you owed. It doesn't make sense. I think Charles Dickens was in that situation once. It doesn't make sense. Garnishing wages makes more sense to me. But back then, that's what they would do. And so you're going to give privilege to someone who's rich when they're the ones that actually throw you into prison until you pay back your last penny? Verse, third reason verse 7. Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? You know, so the rich, there tends to be a trait among the rich, ordinarily, just ordinarily speaking, but they may not honor God with their words. Again, they don't need to honor God. They don't feel a need. They will even talk down on Christians and put down Christians. That could be the tendency among the rich who have no need for God. And so those are the points, three points. And then the fourth, verse 8, Yes, indeed, it is good when you truly obey our Lord's royal command found in the Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you pay special attention to the rich, you are committing a sin, for you are guilty of breaking the law. Because the law says to love your neighbor as yourself, but when you show preferential treatment to a rich over the poor, you're really not doing that. You're breaking the law. And then he goes on, and we often quote this verse, maybe don't understand the context of it, in verse 10. The person who keeps all the law except one is guilty as the person who breaks all of God's laws. For the same God who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you murder someone, you've broken the entire law, even if you do not commit adultery. And so, you know, you can't really see the law as a string of pearls. Each little pearl is an individual law all by itself. If I break the one pearl here, murder, that's the only law I violated. The only guilt I need to feel is uh, having murdered somebody. Or if I committed adultery and broke this pearl, uh, no, the laws are not individually set apart. The laws are a collection of one body, one unified body of God's will. And if you break one law, you've broken God's will. And so if you uh, are not a murderer, as I doubt that these Christians were, or were not adulterers, that's fine that James is saying. But if you show partiality to to a poor person, you've broken the law, just like the murderer has, just like the adulterer has. If you show partiality to a rich person over a poor person, you've broken this unified body of law that represents God's will. And then in verse 12, So whenever you speak and whatever you do, and now he's setting up the basis for his next part of chapter 2, the last part, profession and deeds will go together. Whatever you profess and whatever you do, Remember that you will be judged by the law of love, that law that set you free, free to be able to obey God, to be able to honor the rich and the poor alike. So there will be no mercy for you if you have not been merciful to others. But if you have been merciful, then God's mercy toward you will win out over His judgment against you. I don't think that's an eternal judgment. I think that's more here in this life. You know, if you're not going to show mercy to those that need mercy in this life, you will experience the the judgment of God in this life, the challenges of uh, disobeying God's principles in this life uh, will be felt by you. You may have eternal life through your faith in Christ. But again, the point here is uh, God wants these Christians... Uh, to help and reach out and value the poorest among them. Okay, now moving on to verse 14. And I can remember years ago I went to a wedding and it was on a blizzardy day in Iowa and I got to about 30 miles uh, and the windshield of my 684 Mustang, it was just so packed with ice, I was driving down the road like this and all of a sudden my windshield wiper just flew right off the car, you know. And uh, then I got another 20 miles and the next thing I knew my car was in the ditch and uh, a road grader was going by, he pulled me out and I just made it uh, to the wedding as Tom Grove and Janet Littlefield said, I do. And then I was snowbound for the next two days. Uh, with about 25 other of our friends from, from Ames, Iowa at the time. And for the next two days we were in the hotel and we were just talking about the Bible and what we were learning. And I just read this book on uh, uh, Handbook of 
personal evangelism by the president of Florida Bible College uh, and a lot of our guys, there are some guys from Florida Bible College in Ames. And the president commented on this verse that we're about to read in James chapter 2 verse 14. Because this verse really confused me. Because this is what the verse says. Dear brothers and sisters, what's the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions, by your deeds, by your works? That kind of faith can't save anyone. And that just confused me because I was of a brand new Christian mindset as I was. I was of the mindset that, hey, it's by faith alone that we're saved. And not by works, not by deeds and so on. And I thought, how does this work? And then I read this book by the president of Florida Bible College, uh, Dr. Stanford. And he came to this verse and he says, Dear brothers and sisters, here's how he interpreted it. And it made perfect sense to me and so I accepted his interpretation he said what's the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions can that faith save anyone and his answer was yes it can because it just takes faith to be saved and I shared that with a little group in the hotel there and one of the brothers said that's ridiculous Tim this implied no I mean it's real obvious the answer is no and so we kind of got into it. I said, well, no, it's just my faith alone. He said, no, but it's got to have works with it. And so we kind of went back and forth on that. But what James is saying here in verse 14, can faith without deeds, can that save you? And the answer is, no, it cannot. And then you might ask, well, what about in Romans chapter 5, verse 4, where Paul writes, or 4, verse 5, when people work or do good deeds, their work or wages are a gift. Uh, when people work, their wages are not a gift. Workers earn what they receive. But people are declared righteous because of their faith, not because of any deed or any work they've done. That's what Paul said. And so how do we fit this in with what James is saying? And some will say this is a, one of the big mysteries of the Bible or contradictions of the Bible. But it's real clear to me, Paul and James are saying the same thing. It's like a tree. And, uh, you know, we've got a big, beautiful elm tree back home. And it's, uh, the roots are as big as the tree is above ground, pretty much, I've understood. Uh, James, Paul is referring to the roots of the tree. That the faith in Jesus that saves us. James is talking about the growth we see above the ground. That's proof that there is a faith. So the book of Romans teaches that it's by faith alone that we're saved. The book of Galatians teaches it's not by faith and works. And James teaches true faith will always result in works. You know, when I became a Christian, uh, I lived in a, like, the alumni hall is like 75 people that live in that hall. And up until then, I would never share my faith or anything like that. I would never even think to. And of course, a lot of Christians, we sat through Bible studies where we're told, share your faith, share your faith. Hey, when I got saved as a freshman in college, everybody in that dorm knew how to get to heaven. Because I was excited. I even wrote to every classmate I graduated with from high school. Had a vice versa law book, sent them out letters. I was excited. No one had to tell me to share my faith when I accepted Jesus. That's because I really had faith. And if we really have faith, if the roots are there of faith, the tree will be evident. That's all James is saying. 
And Paul would say the same thing. That true faith will, will have works. Now what is James even bringing this up in chapter 2 for? Because the rich people have an obligation to the poor. And a lot of these rich people are saying, you know, be warm and be comforted and so forth, go your way. But they're not lifting a finger to give any money to take care of the poor people among them. That's the context of this. So in verse 14, we go on in verse 15. Suppose you see a brother or sister who needs food or clothing. And you say, well, goodbye and God bless you. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? There's... Likely no faith in a person who would say that. So you see, it isn't enough just to have faith. Faith that doesn't show itself by good deeds is no faith at all. It is a dead, it is useless because true, or because true faith always results in evident works. Works are really the fruit of faith. Now here's a little debate going on. You know, someone may argue, hey, some people have faith, others have good deeds. They're both good. You know, this person's really, you know, gifted in faith. This guy over here, he's just really gifted in giving. You know, so this is what one person is saying. These are both good things. Neither is bad. Maybe some people will be more in faith and some people will be over here. It's either or. James is saying no, it's both and. It can't be either or. Because indeed there may be some that would say, in verse 18, some have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, I can't see your faith if you don't have good deeds. But I will show you my faith through my good deeds. The good deeds simply show the faith that is there. Do you still think it's enough just to believe that there is one God? Well, even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. Fool, when will you ever learn that faith that does not result in good deeds is no faith at all? If our faith doesn't change our lives, at least to some measure, you, you really have to examine whether you're in the faith. Don't you remember that our ancestor, now he's pulling up the big gun Abraham, was declared... We've got a big gun Abraham here among us too, don't we, here somewhere. I can't, there he is, there he is over there. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was declared right with God because of what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, he was trusting God so much that he was willing to do whatever God told him to do. And in one passage we're told that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead because God had promised Abraham it was through Isaac. That he, that he would be the father of nations. And you see, he was trusting God so much that he was willing to do whatever God told him to do. His faith was made complete by what he did, by his actions. So God said, Abraham, I want you to kill, or Abraham, I want you to kill Isaac. The knife goes up. Would, would that knife come down or not? If Abraham was, had the faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead, that knife would, would come down. If he did not have that faith, the action of that knife coming down would not be seen. It's the faith that saves, but the action shows the faith, the saving faith. And that knife began to come down. And at that point, God said, stop, Abraham, you've shown me that you do have faith. 
That's what Abraham, it says, was justified in his faith. He was trusting God so much he was willing to do that. Verse 23, And so it happened, just as the scripture said, Abraham believed God, so God declared him to be righteous. He was even called the friend of God. So you see, we are made right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example of this. She was made right with God by her actions. When she hid those messengers, Jewish messengers sent by Moses, and sent them safely away by a different road, just as the, uh, sent them away by a different road. You know, some even argue, if you argue that this passage is saying that uh, good works save you, what are the good works that are used as examples in this passage? One is murder and the other is treason. You'd have to actually find yourself in the, in the case where you have to make the case where you're saved by murder and you're saved by treason. Abraham murdering Isaac and Rahab being treasonous to her nation of Israel. But they were not murderer or a, a treasonous person. They were acting in faith. It's the faith that saved them. It's the faith that saves us. But James' point is, faith will always reflect itself in action. And if you say you're a Christian and have the resources to give food and clothing to a poor person, then don't. That faith is useless. You may not even have saving faith. Just as the body is dead without a spirit, so also faith is dead without good works. And so that's chapter 2. And uh, Nick, could you bring that lamp that's up in front of your computer there? I'd like to close on one other verse. And it's in your outline in Titus chapter 2.14. Oh, thanks a lot, Nick. Okay, man, appreciate it. And uh, I often think of this lamp when I think of this verse. This is kind of a life verse of mine. And uh, I go to this lamp whenever I think of this verse. This is a, a lamp, kerosene lamp that I uh, found in our shed back home. And it was just full of dust, even more than some there now. And uh, I just thought I'd love to have that old family heirloom of sorts. And I asked Mom if I could have it. And I really knew if it just stayed on that ledge out there in the shed, it's only a matter of time it's going to fall and smash. Uh, actually, I brought it home and, the, and the, 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 the glass up here fell and smashed, so I, I wasn't able to do it. But um, you know what I did with this? I saw this, this kerosene lamp, and I decided I wanted to, to, to take it into my possession. I wanted to redeem it from a certain fall where it would be crashed. And you know what? I could actually use this kerosene lamp now. In fact, this wick is, uh, really hasn't been used, at least for a long time. And so I could uh, actually, this lamp could be useful. And it's mine. It's in my possession now. And I redeemed it from certain destruction had I left it out there. And that's what I think in Titus chapter 2.14. And in this passage here, it just says this. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, to make us his very own people, uh, to make us, as it says in the New American Standard, zealous for good deeds. And so God, just like I took with that lamp, he's taken you, and he's saved you, he's redeemed you, he's cleansed you, got the dust off of you, He's redeemed you. He's taken you into his own possession so that you can be useful. So that you can be zealous for every good deed. 
And don't think that you have the Christian faith if you're not zealous for these good deeds. God wants your good deeds lived in your life to reflect, to show the genuine faith we have within our souls. And uh, so that's the challenge James is presenting to these Christians. And next week we'll talk about uh, that next theme, the theme of wisdom. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. Lord, uh, I get, sometimes I know I have genuine faith, but I don't always have the desire to do good. I'm tired. Uh, maybe I don't even know what it means, what good needs to be done, how to do it. Maybe I just get selfish. And I confess that, Lord. But, uh, Lord, to the degree that you've blessed me, blessed us, help us take those blessings that we might indeed be a blessing to others. In so doing, show the world and demonstrate to you the faith that we're blessed to have received in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys. We'll look forward to seeing you Wednesday night.